know how does that affect what we have faith in? Anyway, there's a lot of things to do. And one of the things, so we're going to sit and do that right away. I'll, I'll give you some instructions in case you've never had instructions. And uh, you'll see how you work with it. But first of all, I, I see that there are a fair number of people I don't know. So if, I, if we haven't met before, tell, what's, your name is Tim. Where do you live, Tim? Colorado. Oh, are you visiting out here? Yes. For Christmas? Yes. That's great. You have relatives here or you're just here? My sister's Okay, so, so then you decided to come. Good. Thank you for coming. Where do you live in Colorado? What's called the Western Slope. Grand Junction is there. Uh-huh. In the days of our skiing, we used to fly to Grand Junction and then take a bus over the mountain. Who else is here that I don't know? What's your name? Catherine. Are you, uh, where do you live? In Sonoma. Uh-huh. Did you come with somebody who comes? No, with somebody who Okay, the, <laughs> someone who doesn't come. Are you the someone who doesn't come that brought her? We came together. Okay. And how come you decided to come today? Solstice. That's why I was really excited about today being the solstice. How many people thought of it? Light coming back into our lives a little bit more. I really thought about it this morning. I think we made it. Okay. And I'll feel better tomorrow. It'll get dark. Three minutes later, so it'll, but you know, but I know I'm on the other side. Don't you feel better? Like we made it. So, what's your name? Also, Catherine. Okay, I'm happy that you're here. Who else do I not know? Yeah. You live in Kenfield. So do I. It got the most rain, except for Forest Knolls last week. It got the next to the highest most rain. Who else? I'm Larry. I'm from Colorado. Ah, are you visiting for the holidays? Or? Yes. <laughs> we were here about five years ago. Oh, so how, isn't this a beautiful room? It's amazing, yeah. Almost don't remember the old room. We just grow. Really, really. What's your name? Kathy. This is a Catherine Rowe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Larry. Larry. Okay. Who else? Who else? Who else? Caitlin. It is a Caitlin Kathy day. Where do you live? Okay. I'm glad you're here. Who else? That's right outside Sacramento. Yes. Yeah. Are there any other Cathy's here? Where's another Cathy? No, okay. It would be really something if we had some monumental. Okay. Huh? Okay, thank you for coming. Um, 
violence pour elle. Well, I'm glad that it's got a good end. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> nice to see you again. <laughs> that you're here. That's said everybody that I had yeah. Oh well oh of course I'm I didn't notice that you're actually Robert, I know you, so nice to see you again. Today. Hey. It's a big deal. How many years did you say? Thirty? 33. We're getting to be a, a very, an almost extinct breed, so uh, good for you. And somebody else had their hand up. Okay, this is, I'm very happy about it. This is just such a lovely place. And everything about this room, it has the right acoustics, it has the right light. It's just a pleasure to sit here. I tell people who come on retreat, don't have to do very much. You just come and sit here quietly and watch the turkeys go by. Did you hear the turkeys this morning? They were carrying on in an incredible way. That, that uh, I find, actually, they... Uh, I've come to appreciate them so much over the years because they're so odd and they're so... Uh, apparently they were trying yesterday to get in here because they were looking in the glass and they think they see another turkey and they were pecking away at the glass. The, I, I, I keep thinking that uh, if we didn't have them, we'd have to go somewhere and catch them and import them because they take, a, they take up a big piece of the retreatants' lives when people are here, especially in the winter and the the January, February, March part of the year, which is the breeding season, they carry on more than other times. And the people who are in retreat up at the top of the hill stand around a lot watching them. There's nothing going on here. You know, you just, if you're on retreat, it's quiet all the time. You sit and you walk and you sit and you walk and you sit and you walk. There's not much to do, except you have the break of seeing the turkeys carrying on or hearing them. It's so like a little cartoon video that you see from time to time. Actually, well, we're going to sit in a minute, but just I remember that when I sit here in the spring of the year, which I sometimes do in February or March as a retreatant, and I watch them, I make up whole stories about them. The, the men turkeys are having fights and uh, really screeching at each other and shrieking and fanning their wings. And right next to them, the women turkeys are grazing quietly, pecking the ground, and the men are fighting. And I walked by them, and I was walking by them, and uh, uh, a hen turkey just turned, I was going to say, looked at me. She turned her head. I imagined that she was looking at me. And with her face, she said to me, can you believe it, what these guys are doing? 
You know, the whole thing is that it's all in our own mind. You know, we make it up. That's not, it's not any different from what I make up about the turkeys. Look at these guys. Can you believe it? Anyway, so that's where we're going to sit. And the purpose of the sitting, really, is to see what's going on in our mind. It's two-part. It's to calm down the mind, clarify it from all the smoke screens of stories that prevent us from being fully awake in this moment in order to be fully awake in this moment and to be able to see what's going on. And the premise behind it is if we saw what was going on, we'd respond in a way that decreased suffering and increased peace and gratitude. Um, One of the things I think about a lot these days uh, is that really true if the whole world became peaceful and looked around? The operating premise I have is that if everybody became really peaceful, had enough to eat, had enough to keep them warm, had a place to live, so they felt safe, would they be friendly? Would they take care of each other? Would wars end? Would sharing start? I like to think that that's true. And that the people who have enough to be relatively safe, we can't be completely safe. I mean, we could have an earthquake right now, but relatively a safe life, which we're all living here, relatively safe. Are we becoming kinder and friendlier? Are we becoming more open-hearted? I thought I turned it off, but it's... All right, I'm turning it off. Um, Two points to sitting. One is it calms down the mind. Another is it clarifies the acuity of perception. And the other is that you get to see from that what needs to get seen, what you've missed, a new thing to understand. So that all the different ways of meditating are in form different. If we sit and we say, may I be free of danger, may I have mental happiness, may I have physical happiness, may I have ease of well-being, which are the phrases I first learned years ago, we say them over and over, or may I feel safe, may I feel happy, may I feel strong, may I live with ease. That's a more contemporary version. It's really to keep the attention focused right here and now so it doesn't clutter up the mind with extra stuff. Like getting rid of clouds in the sky and you can see the blue behind it. The same is true if I close my eyes and I feel the breath come in and out and in and out. All over the world, people who meditate in different traditions use the breath. It's a kind of a ubiquitous meditation tool because the sign that you're alive is the fact that breath is going in and out of your body. Also, that you continue to live is because the breath goes in and out of the body. It's reassuring to feel breath in, breath out. 
try to remember to say in a group this size that it's being with your breath in and out is calming if you don't have COPD or any other kind of breathing difficulty then it's not calming then it's better to just feel your whole body sitting or think of a phrase may I feel safe may I feel free of suffering may I feel safe may I feel free of suffering to find some phrases that you really like actually that's a nice set But to find something that you can rest in. The most important part of that instruction of using words or using sensations in the body, breath or sensations in the whole body, is a sense of resting in it. Don't do any work. Don't do any work and don't fall asleep, that's all. Those are the two instructions. Last week when the, there was such rain happening and uh, I was with some friends up the hill teaching and we uh, have there, as we do here, wonderful windows. And I said, keep your eyes open and just look at the rain coming down. Something very soothing about the whole valley, having a bath. There's a lot of noise. Steady and repetitive noise. Find something steady and repetitive, like words or your breath, or the silence, to pay attention to. And we'll sit for 25 minutes.
We always use these um, last moments of our time that we sit quietly together. Um, mention, if we want to, whoever has come to our mind, uh, people we know, people in our families, people close to us, people we're thinking about, who are in some sort of special time of getting used to a new situation. friend who just uh, went with her car, and uh, the car was substantially damaged, but nobody else was hurt, and uh, she's realizing that she really needs to give back her driver's license and not drive anymore. And so I was feeling for her and for everyone else finds themselves in the category of not being able to do something that they used to do anymore, of which I am certainly in that alley of people. And that, that's one of the jobs of um, elderliness. But I hope for Marie that she does this as gracefully as she thinks she can. So I'm thinking about her. Who are you thinking about this morning?
Thinking about how when the mind is even just a little bit relaxed and present, other people's life events resonate, as, resonate in our hearts as if they're ours. And we rejoice and uh, feel sad for people that we only hear about and don't know it because we feel somehow in a mind that's so open that we do know them. And how that enlivens the mind so much. That being present actually with a whole heart to other people's hearts as they as as they as they delight and as they weep makes us all more grateful for our lives and for our connections. May everyone on this um, beautiful and beleaguered planet feel buoyed up by their connections. and inspired to console and to connect. I didn't know where to start. I I really know what I want to say, but I was so touched by all of our sharing. I want to tell you about this book called Tribe. About it's called On Homecoming and Belonging. And I was just, and particularly in these last five minutes, um, so grateful for the fact that. <clears throat> There's a certain way in which we have become a family, and we become a new family with new family members every week. Not everybody is here every week. Some people are here for the first time. But it's so reassuring to me that if we sit down together peacefully and quietly and let our individual minds and hearts relax into this moment, we suddenly are moved by the stories of strangers, people we don't know at all. I was really going to talk about being moved by being moved by the condition of suffering in this world and feeling more whole as a human being when we are moved by feeling connected to all the world. 
There was a, a picture, there was an article and a picture on the front page of the New York Times uh, about 10 days ago. And I looked all over it for it this morning. I, I saved it um, to bring here. And, uh, and I couldn't find it this morning. Uh, so I'll tell it to you because... There was a picture, again, about refugees and uh, about the fleeing of uh, citizens from Aleppo. And it, if you saw it in the New York Times, it was above the fold on the front page. Did you see that? It's an, in, it's an impossible to look at photo. You see people fleeing. And the photographer has taken pictures of a crowd of people fleeing Aleppo. And in the front of it is a man and a woman right behind him. It's hard to even tell. Uh, the man looks like somewhere in his 30s, you know, a grown man. He, the woman behind him is wearing a full burqa, and you can see her eyes here. She's right behind him. He's carrying a big bundle in his left arm. Is that the one you saw, Paula? He's carrying a bundle in his left arm, wrapped up in what looks like a blanket or a bedspread or something. And you don't see the baby in there, but you know it's a baby because he's carrying it like you would. And in his hand here, in his free hand, he's holding a... Um, you call that a... Uh, uh, the baby is clearly getting a, a transfusion, hmm? an IV. He's holding a bottle with fluid in it up here. Who I don't know what the, whether it's antibiotic or a blood transfusion or uh, uh, just uh, rehydration. And you see the, the tube from it going into this wrapped up blanket. And you can't look at it. You can't look at it, you know. Uh, it's... The, the, and they're walking in masses of people and bundled up because it's cold. And I can't help thinking that it's not likely that baby's going to survive whatever it is. They've just begun a trip to somewhere. And I, I took that and I thought, you know, how can people see this all over the country, even if you don't get the New York Times? If you walk past newsstands, this is a picture that's looking out at you. If you walk past other people, this is a picture that's looking out at you. How come we're not all refusing to go to work or staying home or going out and sitting down in the street and say, listen, we're not going to do this anymore? John went to Greece last year because there were pictures in the paper that he saw. And we can't all go to Greece and... and, and um, you know, the part of the story that you told when you got back, John, that I have in my mind so much is uh, we saw pictures of John ladling out soup and to people on a soup line. But I have a memory of uh, the, the image of the lines which are so long into the distance. There are 65 million people who are refugees at this moment walking around on this globe. That's so overwhelmingly terrible. 
I think to myself, why don't we all just go out and sit down on the floor and say, that's it. Forget it. We're not going to do anything else until everybody gets together and says, put down the guns, stop doing that, let's heal this planet before it's too late. You know, I, I sign all kinds of petitions. You probably do too. About, I'm sure you do, about I'll go walk here and I'll stand here and I'll sign this and I'll sign that. What would it take for everybody to go out and say, that's it, I'm not going to continue to be a person having a life as if this isn't happening. It is happening. Uh, I'm, you know, myself as well. I've had a, it's a a silly story, it's not. I'm a little chagrined by it. Because I just asked a story, how come we're not all out sitting in the street? How come we're not all doing something? Uh, This morning, when I started, so I'll tell you the story. I I went to look up something on... um, on my computer, I was going to print it out for you, and uh, as it was, I didn't get time to do it, and so I just printed it out here. But I had a feeling of imperative, I really need to print this out. And I went on my computer, and there was my mail, and I was looking for a particular mail, that a particular email that I uh, had been waiting for, and uh, it wasn't there, so I was scrolling down. I was deleting, 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 deleting. And one of the things that I get every day in the mail, I'm uh, signed up with an organization called Change.org. How many people are signed up with? That's fantastic. Change.org, you know. Uh, every day I get at least one petition to sign, and usually more, two or three, and then if I sign one, click here to sign, another one comes up. It's like the hats of Bartholomew Covens. You can't, you can't finish them. It's a bottomless pit of, of things to sign. But they're very good things to sign. And usually I read them and I sign and I find out that I'm the 242nd signer and they want half a million signs and then they send them off to the appropriate people. So I, I mostly sign. And this morning I'm going through delete, delete, delete. And then there's another one from change.org. And they always have a banner of uh, what, what that petition has to do with. And sometimes they have to do with, please help me get permission to keep my pet pig. I've said, you know, that somebody's got a problem with that. And I've looked, I've actually signed that about somebody with a uh, pet pig, one of those little, I forgot what you call them, pigs. They don't get to be enormous. Hmm? Teacup Tea pigs. Anyway, so I, somebody has a pig in a, rural, in a suburban area of some city. And the pig is X years old, but the pig has grown up in their backyard for these many years. He comes into the house, it's potty trained. I mean, it goes outside for that. It's like a dog, a family pet. And uh, the neighbors had complained to the district because they have a pig. And the district is about to reclaim the, ki- the pig because it's zoned, uh, it's not zoned agricultural. So uh, something, so, it, but that's about what it is. So 
and then you see a picture of this poor two children who are thinking about having to give up their pig and how terrible they feel. And please appeal to the city council of this small town to give an exemption to this pig. So I signed it sometime way in the back. And so sometimes they have, you know, not the most earth-shaking things. But then this morning, I'm, I'm trying to find something rather than delete, 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 delete. Here's something new from change.org. And it says, uh, my wife was killed by a drunk driver. <coughs> That's a terrible thing. But I, I'm deleting and deleting. I'm looking for something. I said, oh, I don't need that. And I delete. And I said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What did you just do? You just deleted that. This man's life just got completely turned over. This man's life got completely demolished. He's got a, he's got a petition and all of a sudden, you're deleting, delete, delete, delete. What you know that you know it's not fifty thousand uh, refugees in a refugee camp. It's not eighty thousand something or other something else. But it's one person, and it's that person's whole entire life. And it's not a pig. That's a pet. It's this person's wife just got killed. And you know all the thoughts. Well, you know. Uh, 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 uh. I, 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 was, I was actually, I was running out and coming here, and on the way over, I thought to myself, every single thing is important. And unless I, if my mind is in such a shape that I can't stop and say, wait a minute, I can sign this. Take 15 seconds to sign, and then say, yes, I'm the Sylvia Borstein that lives in Kentfield. 15 seconds. That there's a sign, that it's some sort of a signal about my life. You'd say, well, you're supposed to respond to everything? Yeah, I think so. <coughs> everything that we could respond to. Sorry about that. I am cognizant of the fact that it's five days before Hanukkah and it's five days before Christmas. It's not usual that they come out together. They have nothing to do with each other except they are both quite close to the um, uh, winter solstice. And they probably are both connected to the fact that there were pagan rituals always at the winter solstice. And they probably come from some similar pagan celebration of the light is returning to the northern hemisphere and bonfires and all those kinds of things to light up the sky and say, feel hopeful, you know, the sun is coming back, it's going to warm up, we'll have crops again. I read a, I, I was at the planetarium a lot of years ago, and the planetarium lecture was about uh, the research that showed that Jesus was probably born, calculating back, came out to not in the year that we are now counting as year zero, but in the year four, after when the current uh, Christian calendar is calculated. Because in the year four, there was such a conjunction of heavenly bodies together that there would have been an enormously big light in the sky. You know, that there was a, a, a light in the sky that led people to that spot. And that uh, it was most likely in the spring. And besides, if, uh, if Joseph was going for a census, that was most likely happening in the spring. 
So probably that was going for the census was in the spring, and it was probably in the spring of what we would think of as 0004 in the current calendar. But that the Christians, when they went after the death of Jesus, uh, began to make a, a, a holiday about it. They said it at the time of the winter uh, solstice because there were lots of um, parties and lighting of lights and a lot of jubilation, and they could hide their own secret, in many cases, worship of Jesus because other people were having a lot of celebrations of the of the solstice. So they could celebrate at the same time, and no one would know that they were privately celebrating the life of the person who said, among other things, love one another as I have loved you. Sometimes I like to talk about it's the birthday of love, celebrated as a, as a possibility in, in human beings. Also, there's not a very big deal about the story of... Uh, uh, Judah, uh, Judah Maccabee and his sons. It's a fable. You know, there was a historically probably a lot of fights between uh, the early Hebrews and uh, uh, Greece or Rome, but it was a not that big of a consequential thing in history. Although there's a small book in the in the scripture about it. But it probably also, this, this festival of Hanukkah with making it more light every day, it falls in the, on the 25th uh, day of uh, the lunar month, which turns out to be really no moon at all. So it's the darkest night of the shortest day of the year in the Western Hemisphere, in the, in the Northern Hemisphere. So it's really a celebration of coming back into light probably was a pagan holiday before it was uh, the religious holiday that it's become. But that people always have wanted to have something that picked up the mind when it was in a mood of darkness or despair. Said, okay, we're moving back into the light. What could we... It'll be better. There'll be hope. The dawning of hope and dawning of light. It's fine that we, that we make stories around them and tell stories about them because the stories inspire hope or kindness. But I thought it was, it was great that it came on a Wednesday, this solstice, and right on top of these two holy days. Really, what I wanted us to think about altogether is... Sometimes there's a, you know, one wife gets killed by a drunken driver. 65 million people are refugees. What can we think about that? What can we do about that? Here's this picture in the New York Times. What to even think about? The mind stops. You think, what can I do? The same thing, I'm sure, you know, if we've been, to, we've been together a long time here, uh, at the time of the invasion of Afghanistan, it was being covered by CNN like a mini-series. 
you know, we're returning now to the war in Afghanistan. And there was a big screen, you know, the, 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 the way that they have a caption that opens up the screen, returning to war in Afghanistan, like it's a miniseries, like there aren't real people. I think that that was the first time that I actually remember having the awareness that I was watching a film uh, taken by photographers who were embedded in the tanks that were rolling into the countryside and that I was seeing war in real time. That through those, through that, that photographer's lens, the people are killing each other. And this is not, it's not a miniseries. It's an actual happening thing. And I happened at the time to live up in Sonoma. I was at a big gym up there with a lot of people. This is not talking bad on gyms. I mean, I was there. And I was walking on the treadmill, doing my half hour on the treadmill, people running on the treadmill next to me uphill. And here's this thing unfolding on six screens. They're in, in front of this a lot of people doing some aerobic training. And I thought to myself, how come... Well, first of all, I thought, how come we don't all get off the treadmills and fall on the floor and, you know, really weep and wail? And, and how come I don't get off the treadmill now and stop and say, listen, this is, this is, we can't do this. We can't sit here and be watching this. Let's at least notice it. Let's talk to each other. Let's say something. Let's say, what could we possibly do? Or... Uh, let's hold each other's hand. People are getting killed. People's children are getting killed in front of our eyes in real time. And we're still running on the treadmill. Some peculiar thing is off kilter here. Don't you think so? I mean, how can we do that? And maybe it's a way of anesthetizing the mind. Maybe we're so used to movies where it's fake that we say, well, you know, it's only a movie, it's only a movie, it's only a movie. Don't get excited. But this isn't only a movie. This is real people there. What to do? You say, well, you know, if you get off the treadmill, people are still getting killed there. But, I, you know, what if everybody ran out of all their gyms all over the world and all their other places where they were? And they said, let's stop. Am I sounding bizarre or is this making sense to you? It's, yeah. Right. I remember that. I remember the denouement scene with pulling down the statue of Saddam Hussein. It was like seeing a movie, but it's real people. I, 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 huh? So what can you do? Well, I'm talking out loud. I, I really think there's something that people can do. I think things like... Uh, not quitting signing all the petitions. 
not saying, look, I signed a million petitions, I sent money to candidates, I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that, I wrote letters to newspapers, and nothing happened. I have to think nothing happened yet. But I, I really think that one of the things that in the weeks following the election, and up until now, I don't have a more hopeful view of what the incoming government is going to do. I'm being very careful not to name names. You know what? We had a... um, No, no, this is really important. The the whole thing is really important. Uh, There was a meeting of Spirit Rock teachers a week ago to talk about what is all right to talk about in Spirit Rock to people here. It's not appropriate to say... um, you have to vote Democratic to come to Spirit Rock. You know, that, that's not appropriate because, first of all, the, the, I don't have... Uh, there are people of all kinds of persuasions in all kinds of parties. And this is a... We have a 501c3 license. We're a church. And we are not supposed to tell people what, what team to vote for or what, yeah, what team to vote for. But we can say... We are, uh, there are things that we don't want to support. We don't want to support uh, racism or bigotry or misogyny or um, xenophobia, what? (coughs) Or the destruction of our environment or the destruction of (coughs) our social security network. We want to take care of the poor friend of mine has written a book called God Loves a Stranger. Uh, my friend is a rabbi. She takes that out of a, a biblical quote where it's part of an injunction that you read over often where it says, what are the, what are the duties that are incumbent on a person who lives in community? And they all have to do with taking care of other people to visit the sick and bury the dead and dower the bride and um, accept and um, the, the stranger in your midst provide sustenance to the stranger in your midst. And then you have, to, you have to think, what is the definition of a stranger? That all the people who don't look like us or sound like us or uh, speak like us or eat like we do or anything like we do. This really has been a, a time of divisiveness, all of the, uh, the politics of the last year and a half, for sure. Someone even pointed out recently the um, sort of hidden divisiveness in uh, politicians talking about uh, special interest groups. Well, we have... Uh, the, uh, the this vote and the that vote. We have the college-educated vote. We have the uh, rural vote. We have the LBGT vote. We have the uh, African-American vote. We have the Jewish vote. We have the this vote. We have the that vote. Turns out, A, it didn't work out like that. The vote, uh, everybody voted every way. And that, B, that's the same sort of divisiveness and playing to it as is troubling, seeing that people are different. I think I told you a few weeks ago that the, was a Sunday after the election, I was a speaker at the Unitarian Church. And um, 
since I was a speaker, I sat in the front row waiting for the what was coming first to happen, and then I was going to speak. And then after me were representatives of the four different parties in Marin County that were on the ballot to vote for for president. And I was sitting next to the a woman who uh, is the president of the Marin Republicans for Donald Trump. And she was also getting ready to speak after me. And she, uh, she saw, I guess she saw my name. I told her my name and she saw it on the, on the program. And she said, oh, you're from Spirit Rock. And I said, I am. And she said, I love Spirit Rock. I go there all the time. I volunteer there at Spirit Rock, which was a very, very good wake up for me. Because everybody comes here to Spirit Rock. And Dharma is really available for everybody, that the mind suffers because of habits that don't serve it well is true for everybody, regardless of how you vote. It's true for all of us, regardless of how we vote. And I really was clear about, I really have to keep in mind whenever I'm speaking in a public way, not to make any kinds of statements that would not be relevant for everybody who voted every kind of a way. I went many years ago, many, many, Sometimes when I'm going to tell you about something I did that was embarrassing, I realize I prefaced it with many, many, many years ago so that I shouldn't embarrass myself about I did this recently. But really, many years ago, I was teaching about the Four Noble Truths and teaching about uh, wise livelihood. And I was teaching about what the Buddha said constituted wise livelihood, which means livelihood that doesn't abuse or exploit or oppress anyone. So it means uh, not using underpaid or non-paid labor. It means uh, not using materials. What did they think about? Not not supporting, uh, this was in the time of the Buddha, not supporting anything that supported the manufacture of alcoholic beverages. Well, we could. I, I, I don't say that when we're here because we live in California. We grow a lot of wine here in California. There is responsible wine drinking, or responsible all kinds of drinking. And really what the Buddha wanted to talk about was irresponsibility in eating and drinking or eating and drinking in a way that led to heedlessness, not taking good care of your body. But then one of the things that the Buddha said was uh, uh, not right livelihood was being in an army. And I said that. <coughs> so you see why I'm embarrassed about it, because I said that, and somebody, I'm happy to say, stood right up. <coughs> Sorry. Anybody got a cough drop? I know. <coughs> Thank you very much. <coughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. It's totally the end of the story, Lynn. You remember the end of that? Were you there? Man stood up and said, I take issue with that. He said, uh, <coughs> 
I just retired from the military. I was in the military for 25 years. My father before me, my grandfather before him. I think of the military as being peacekeepers in the world. And we've I've worked in various missions where we were peacekeepers in different places. And I felt very much um, wakened up by him. And that it's incorrect to say we shouldn't have an army. It's a kind of a not thought, thoughtful thing to say. I, what, what if we were attacked? An army... Um, not to abuse particular strength by waging a war, but to protect or to guard or to keep the peace. I realize it's very easy to fall into easily mocking another group, like army, like the in people, the hip in Marin type people who know better. We could make bad remarks about army. But, you know, who knows who the army has guarded who the army has taken care of, who the army in the course of training people has provided education for so many people who wouldn't get it otherwise. So that it's a very desirable choice for young men and women who couldn't get an education in another way, get trained for some vocation. So have a look at what are all the the notions that we that we have that are embedded here that skew our judgment so that it's less than gracious towards all groups of people. Really, to, to, to all, all, this, all Republicans, no good. All military people, no good. All this, no good. Say, really, God loves a stranger. How to be able to say, there are people who are doing, the people, first of all, even if there are people doing something that's really terrible, they're people, and... For whatever reason they're doing it, that's what they're doing. And may that what they're doing not lead to suffering. I mean, somehow I keep thinking about this, even particularly in the um, in the wake of the election. It's very easy to be mad at this group or that group or this group that didn't vote the way I wanted them to group vote. But Mad doesn't serve me at all. It's just not good for me. And if I think about it, I think to myself, I don't really know who to be mad at. That's really the big problem, because I don't know who to be mad at. I can't be mad at people because they behaved in a certain way. They behave that, I don't like the way they behave, but they behave, everybody behaves in the way that they do. Seriously, this is the most radical phrase I know, but I think it's true. I believe it's true. Everybody does, is doing the best they can to make a choice. Sometimes I think it's misguided, but given their information, given who brought them up, given what the possibilities seemed to them at the time, I think we're doing the best we can, everybody. And that the answer when people are doing things that are maladaptive is not to hit them for it, but to educate them really encourage them to do things a different way. The thing that I was trying to... Oh, 
I, let me let me actually digress a little bit. I wanted to tell you this in case you haven't done all your holiday shopping yet. I was talking to a woman yesterday, um, a woman I work with in a in an organization I'm part of, and she lives in the East Coast. And I hadn't known about I, I hadn't known very much about her background. I know that she speaks in an English that lets me know how she's very articulate, but that English isn't her first language. It has some hint of a, a European language underneath it. And she told me that she was born in, uh, uh, she was born in Romania after uh, World War II, and uh, that uh, when she was still a, a young girl, uh, the situation under the communist takeover in Romania was not comfortable for Jews, and it was hard to get out. And she told me about how finally there were permits arranged so that she could get out. And her family, she and her brother and her mother and father, she said, we didn't have passports and we didn't have visas, but we had pieces of paper, just a piece of paper folded over that said, let these people out of Romania so they could they had a piece of paper to get out of Romania, but they didn't have a piece of paper after that to make them residents anyplace else. So they went to Belgium, where they were supposed to go, but then uh, they were kept a little bit by aid agencies that supported them with it until they could figure out a way to go from there. And they went from there to um, Paris, and then they had to be there for a while until the aid agencies could find a way to get them to uh, South America, to a particular city where a brother of her father was. And they went there and they got jobs and they stayed there for f six years. And finally they got a tourist visa to the United States because they needed to get out of there. So they came to the United States. But now they had a tourist visa going to run out. And just by an act of complete luck, they were in some sort of a store where her mother got into a conversation with another woman who had a, an accent similar to hers and find out that she's a Romanian. And there's a Romanian community there. And there was somebody in the community that this woman knew who knew how to, who to go to see to get a, a more durable visa. And um, she said, what's the chances that you're somewhere in a store just talking to somebody and you say, I recognize your accent, and they recognize you as their kin, and they get you to somebody who can get you a, uh, a, an enduring, you know, long-term visa. And she said in 19, whatever it is, but years later, she said, um, I finally got to have my citizenship, she said, you know. And the day that I went and uh, got my citizenship for that particular ceremony, where you pledge allegiance together with other people and they give you um, citizenship papers. She said, it was the happiest day of my whole life. You know? Finally, I had a community. I was here. I was a person. I was supposed to be here. I was thinking about that as a story about belonging and to feel like you belong to a tribe, that you're part of that, you're an American or something. I, I usually feel that when I come back, I, you know, I haven't been to Europe in a while, 
But I used to always, when you come in to uh, the airport in San Francisco and you're flying from Europe, as you're get coming into the passport hall, there's a recording that's, that's that, do you remember it? Do you know what it says? What? It says, welcome to the United States of America. I was thinking about all my, my, my father and his mother and father who came from Europe, all the people I know who came from other places. Now I'm thinking about my friend who told me this story yesterday. May we have that. May we have a country that says, welcome to the United States of America. More and more, there was another article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago with um, a picture of a woman who's a friend of mine who lives in Philadelphia in an animated conversation with a young woman. My friend is my age. She's in an animated conversation with a young woman wearing a hijab um, at an organization called uh, something like Meeting Each Other or Crossing Boundaries or something. But specifically, they're Muslim women and Jewish women who are of all ages who are meeting each other and getting to know each other and being friends with each other. You think, well, you know, there how many billion Muslim women in the world and five million Jewish women in the world, maybe? I think 10 million altogether people, maybe 12, but not, not more. But they're meeting each other, and their pictures are in the paper of meeting each other. We're starting to have, maybe, it in the communal consciousness, we can all be together. So there's some things to say about being together. I want to make sure... Oh, now one more thing about... My my friend in um, New York yesterday, with whom I was talking, who was telling me her story of going here and there and there and there, and finally becoming a citizen, she was telling me, she mentioned an organization that I hadn't heard of for years and years. I said, who paid for you when you got out of there? Who got you to Belgium? Who got you to Paris? Who got you to South America? Who got you here? She said, oh, Hayas did it. H-I-A-S. I grew up hearing about Hayas. You know Hayas? What's Hayas stand for? Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. My father got help from Hayas when he came at nine years old. His relatives who survived the Second World War by running out of a city that said where they said all Jews report tomorrow morning at nine o'clock with one suitcase, we're going to a work camp, and they were taken off to concentration camps and killed. He had some cousins. He was in this country by that time. He had cousins who said, forget it about the work camp. We're not going there, who ran off and hid in the woods, Polish woods, for two years, made dugouts under the ground, lived underground for a couple of years, stole from farmers at night so they could eat. Babies were born underground. And a fair number of them, I mean, a group of 12, I think, hid. They survived, and then they came to the United States, and I'd sit in the corner of the living room and listen to them all talking to each other. They spoke Yiddish, which I understand, and uh, they all came with the help of Hayas, Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, which started in 1890 or something, helping immigrant Jews, and now they, they, they help 
refugees. They help all kinds of refugees, not just Jews. And um, so she said, we're not giving uh, holiday presents this year, taking all the money and all the money that I usually donate to other causes, and I'm sending it to Hayas. I thought, wow, I remember that name. And I realized that I had been just about to get the usual present for my children and grandchildren, which is Heifer Foundation. But then I realized my children and my grandchildren, who used to think it was great to send a flock of bunnies to somebody and two sheep and a cow, you know, they're all in their 20s and 30s. They're not so moved by cows and sheep. So I, I got on the website of Hayas, H-I-A-S, and I got to look at these beautiful pictures. Thank you for taking a stand on refugees this year. Especially now, we need to remind everyone that America has always been on its best when we welcome refugees, and at our worst when we've closed our doors in fear. Please share this. So I did, and I invite you to look at them too. We respect the experience, identity, and beliefs of all people. We embrace the uniqueness of every human being. As a respect-driven organization, we appreciate the diversity of ideas and perspectives that imbue our work. We uphold the value of each individual and what each has to offer. We make time commitments to one another and are fully present in all our interactions. What if we all did that? What if we all did that with our children, with our grandchildren, with our in-laws, with our next-door neighbors? Who's a native Spanish speaker here? Anybody? Native speaker? Nobody. Nobody. Okay. What I printed was a Spanish version of Keeping Quiet by Pablo Neruda. But I won't read it either because my Spanish is, it's a beautiful poem in Spanish, but my, 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 my Spanish will not be good enough for it. Nobody? Okay. Come up. Come on. Come on, come on. I'm going to read it first in, in uh, English. Now we will count to 12, and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would suddenly all be together in a strange, sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would look at his hurt hands. I shouldn't stop, it's beautiful, I should read it. That particular line, we would stop and look around. If we could say stop, if I could have, when people are all running on the treadmill, rang a bell and said, people, look at this. Look what's going on. Do something. Go home. Call the, call the attorney general. Call somebody. Do something or other. All we have to do is look around. and See a picture of the people in Delhi who can't breathe. 
and in Beijing, whose children can't breathe. And in some place in the United States, where was it last week, where people were not able to breathe because of some... Was it in Tennessee? Some place there was an inversion in the climate and people can't breathe at any minute. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, we put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it's about. I want no truck with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening each other with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count to 12 and you keep quiet and I will go. Go. Oh, wait, here. It's called A Callarse, Keeping Quiet. Ahora contaremos doce y nos quedamos todos quietos. Por una vez sobre la tierra no hablamos en ningún idioma. Por un segundo destengamos, destengámonos. No movamos tanto los brazos. Sería un minuto fragante, sin prisa sin locomotoras. Todos estaríamos juntos en una inquietud instantánea. Los pescadores del mar frío no harían daño a las ballenas y el trabajador de la sal miraría sus manos rotas. Los que preparan guerras Verdes, guerras de gas, guerras de fuego, victorias sin sobrevivientes. Se podrían un traje puro y andarían con sus hermanos por la sombra sin hacer nada. No se confunda lo quiero con la inacción definitiva. La vida Es solo lo que hace, se hace. No quiero nada con la muerte. Si no pudimos ser unánimes moviendo tanto nuestras vidas, tal vez no hacer nada una vez. Tal vez un gran silencio pueda ir interrumpir esta tristeza. Este no Entendernos jamás y amanazanos con la muerte. Tal vez la tierra nos enseñe cuando todo parece muerto y luego todo estaba vivo. Ahora contaré hasta doce y tú te calles y me It's beautiful. 
What moves me about that is the line, all we'd have to do is stop and look around. I keep <clears throat> thinking back on the people running on the treadmill and all of us running to keep up in our lives and confused and overwhelmed and angry and frightened. What if we had a... But we don't. What if we had a worldwide Sabbath? Everybody stop. One day and did not do anything. He says 12 seconds, but... Look around. But what are we all going to do? I've been thinking about it a lot, about writing New Year's resolutions. Donald said uh, that last week you wrote Bodhisattva vows. How many people were here did Bodhisattva vows with Donald? Great. Was it good? I think we'll, we won't write Bodhisattva because Donald did it. But I think we'll we'll take next week and look through all the paramis and say, what are we going to do? Are we going to do generosity? Are we going to do patience? Just pick one of them and say, this is my year. Because they all mean the same thing, generosity or patience or truthfulness or loving kindness. They're all permutations and combinations of the same thing. We'll think about the new year that's coming and have a kind of a New Year's celebration with that. I think that the only possible thing to do is hope that things start to lighten up in the, in the sense of become more clear and go in a way that's more compassionate. What I didn't do today, which we'll do because we ran out of time, is um, someone gave me a book as a present called Tribe. Have you seen this around? It's an amazing book about the experience of feeling like you belong somewhere. And it's not necessarily, it, not at all among, uh, a lot of it is making uh, comparisons between different ways of lives, but not with a name on this or that, but the, a way of uh, more sharing. Well, this is one part. Talking about in, uh, in uh, more Native communities uh, <clears throat> and in, you know, uh, in ancient times for, that anthropologists can see uh, from cave drawings even, a picture of um, ten men standing around uh, without looking like uh, natives of a particular culture. And there's one man uh, lying on the ground, dead, and everybody's standing around with a quiver, but uh, but empty quiver, and with a bow, but nobody's got an arrow. And there's ten arrows in this person. So it really looks like, in some sense, a pre-gun firing squad, that this must have been the most terrible crime that the person could have done in that community. And he's making the point from archaeologists and from knowledge that the worst crime in uh, more early societies was not sharing. That that was, the, that was the biggest crime, is not sharing. Not being a community member, not sharing. And the, But then they mostly talk about that the benefits of not being of being a community member is you never feel alone. 
and you always feel like you belong. And someone always takes care of you, and you share the work also. You share the child raising. And um, there's not a big uh, inequality of wealth. And there isn't a storing up of wealth, because what would you store and where would you store it? And a lot of more free time. A lot of more singing of songs and telling of stories. It's very, very interesting to think what we've lost in becoming more insular and how we live. A woman told me a story of having to go to the hospital. A woman who lives in New York, I met her on a retreat, and she said, since I'm retired, I'm an old school teacher, since I retired, lots of my friends are dead. And I really don't have any close friends, and I, I never had children or, or a partner. I don't really have anybody. I live in an apartment building with a hundred families in it, and I needed to go to the hospital to have, uh, I think it was a colonoscopy, and they said, you need to have someone to drive you home. She said, I didn't have anybody to drive me home. I had to ask the um, doorman of my apartment house if he'd come and get me and bring me home from the hospital. And it sort of haunted me since she told me the story that you could live in New York City with eight million people live there, and a hundred families in your building, and not have someone to drive you home from the hospital. I think that's, that sounds so sad, that here we are. And we got very modern, but we forgot how to be friends, apparently. Not everybody. Anyway, you know what we forgot to do today? We did not, Ace is not here. He says, say hello to the people next to you. Before you get up and leave, please say hello to the people next to you, and especially the people who haven't been here before. Tell them, happy to have you here. Please come back again, all of those things. Ready, set, go, and I'll see you next week. Well, okay. I want to introduce you to Caitlin, and um, uh, this is Caitlin, my dear friend's daughter. Hello. And, and it's her first time. But she also, I wanted to ask you a question. She also works in the prison system uh-huh. in um, Southern California as a social worker therapist. Yeah. And I know that Tony Barnard works in the prison system, and I wonder if you know any any other teachers, Vipassana teachers, that work in the prison system. I don't, but Tony. <laughs> I don't, but Tony. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.